welcome back to the Y Hockey Periodical Podcast. I'm Lisbon Stoddard, one of your hosts today, and uh, this is going to be a special show. Somebody who I've wanted to have on this show for a very long time. Somebody who, if you have not been reading his stuff, you should definitely do that, because one of the goals of Y Hockey is to hopefully make everyone around us listen to these shows and interview people smarter about hockey, and I haven't found many people in hockey who make you smarter more consistently than Jack Hahn. Welcome to the show, Jack. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing fantastic. Uh, thank you for having me, Matt. Appreciate you coming on, and uh, as I say, I, I have really enjoyed reading your stuff and w- watching the videos you post. In so many ways, you're one of my favorite people to interact with when it comes to learning about hockey, because one of the things in general, before we get to more specific topics, is how in this sport, in just the general discourse, I don't think we talk about the pure tactics of the game all that much. In other sports, you do. In soccer, everybody can tell you about formations. In football, they can tell you about defenses. In basketball, you've got many different kinds of uh, defenses you can play. But in hockey, you don't have a ton of talk about like the actual like X's and O's. And so you do an incredible job of bringing that to everyone. And uh, I, I want to ask why you think, firstly, we, we don't talk a ton in the general hockey discourse about the raw X's and O's as much. Uh, well, the, the most obvious reason is because hockey is less of a global sport. There, you know, in the grand scheme of things, there's just not as many people interested in hockey than, than there is in soccer or basketball or, um, you know, th- those more international sports. And, and certainly, I think you, you need a critical mass of people talking about something for it to become a thing. Like we saw that with analytics in the past 10 or 15 years, like, um, uh, you know, there was that critical mass that was reached a few years ago, and now it seems like every mainstream journalist is at least familiar with, you know, the different whether it's Corsi expected goals and stuff like that. And there are just fewer people out there who have the necessary experience or the perspective to talk about tactics. And you know, I I am one of them, but only because I've had those experiences working at the high school level, then at the university level, then at the pro level. So. And now being back in, in the public sphere instead of working for a team. So not many people in hockey have those experiences. But my my whole thing is for for people who read my work or follow me on Twitter, like I want you to, I want you, the fan, to understand that uh, there's actually, you know, a science to it uh, and, and that it is possible for you to learn about tactics and understanding what's going on. And I think every hockey fan, every sports fan, wants to learn more about this because when you boil it down, you want to know more about the games you're watching. And in most cases, I think people just want to learn. I think people actually don't genuinely want to ask questions. And there is a market niche to be filled, and you filled it incredibly well. I think I saw you, what, you have 3,000 subscribers to your newsletter, which is pretty incredible for, you know, a sport that doesn't have much talk about tactics in general. So I think you found something here. And I'm glad you have found something because, uh, again, for all of us, just to be made smarter by your work is is, is incredible. Yeah, and f- for me, um, it's always been pretty simple when it turn when it comes to finding a niche or thinking about what I what I'm going to write about because I'm essentially writing for you know 16 or 18 year old me who who didn't know all of these things, and sometimes I would I would wonder you know would I have been a better player had I learned this stuff growing up or whatever? And probably yes, but obviously there's not anything I can do about it now. But, you know, the, the next best thing is for me to at least, uh, you know, make a living out of uh, 
sharing these ideas and helping other people improve. I think that's, again, one of the cool parts about the, where we are in the world of hockey and sports in general right now is that people are able to find these niches and truly use them for good. I mean, all of hockey analytics came from a niche that has now exploded into a space where you could ask people about it that work on teams with analytics, and they're going to like, yeah, we can't really talk to you about that. But we have such a robust public sphere, and I hopefully we'll get to that point with tactics at some stage because I'd, I'd love to be able to pick the brain of some of these really smart people in hockey about how this game is played and how it's evolving because it's clearly changed so much. And, again, I think fans really genuinely want to talk about it. Certainly I do. So I want to talk about one of your latest uh, video breakdowns. Please subscribe to Jack's work if you haven't already. Uh, and, of course, we're going to focus largely on the Panthers here. And I want to start with this poker analogy you made in this latest uh, video you've done. And it's really interesting how when you think about it in general, you go, okay, how do these two things connect? And then you put it really cleanly and in a very digestible way in the video about where certain shots are taken on the ice as a, and compare it to certain kinds of hands in poker you get. And the best example I can give, and you, of course, will watch the video, is if you get pocket aces, that's like shooting right in the middle, high slot, royal road, extremely high danger chance. And if you have a lower hand, it's like a, a point shot from right along the blue line, basically. And that analogy makes a, a really good amount of sense, and it goes into a discussion you later have about how two different teams, in this case the Leafs and Panthers, go about getting shots in the offensive zone and setting up to get chances. So I first want to start about that poker analogy, uh, and you play and in the video to talk about playing online poker when you were coaching, just to take the edge off a little bit, and comparing it to hockey, I think it works out really well. And uh, the the metaphor I think does a really good job of explaining just the difference between low and high danger chances. So talk a little bit about that first. So to to have some perspective on this conversation, we got to go like seven years back. So if you it, as a Panthers uh, journalist, you probably remember the computer boys days, right? When I very when, much remember what happened yeah. when they were around. Yes. So, so th there's the, the, the thesis uh, of that team was they're going to find guys with, you know, good on ice shot uh, differentials and plug them into the lineup and then hope that essentially, you know, they're, they're it's going to carry over into um, the the team system that they played in, right? And we saw that uh, they were certainly able to find some good players like uh, you know Riley Smith and Jonathan Marchessault and and so on and so forth. But as a whole, the team maybe didn't perform to the level that they expected, and and certainly uh, there was a course reversal very uh, very soon thereafter. And I contrast that whole thing with how the Maple Leafs were built and and once again we're going back to like 2014-15 when um, uh, when there was a regime change and then Kyle Dubas came in and then uh, you know Lou Lamorello came in and obviously the Leafs did well to draft a lot of great young players very early in the draft but also during my time working there so that's between uh, 2017 and 2020 um not only did we care a lot about the the analytics side of things, which is you know how the players are performing and how let's say for a prospect, you know if they scored well in junior, then we can expect them to score better in you know somewhat better in pros than maybe guys who didn't score in junior. But there, there was the other element of like looking for a certain 
style of play and developing elements that led to that style of play, which is, um, you know, under Kyle, we emphasized skill and we wanted to hold on to the puck. And, you know, we really tried to create controlled exits and controlled entries, which I think in Florida at that time, they were trying to do that too, but they didn't really have a deep understanding of the, the different skill elements that went into it. And I think what, what happened with, with the Leafs um, from then on is they got really good at um, spreading the ice, uh, getting into the good areas, and then attacking from the highest possible danger uh, locations on the ice, right? Where if, if then you fast forward to like the, the Bill Zito regime in Florida, they went and they just went and got a lot of very quick players who were good skaters and had good skills off the rush. Uh, you know, we're talking about Carter Verhage or Alex Wemberg or, um, uh, you know, on the fence. Yeah, Anthony Duclair on the fence. You had Forsling, who was a very good skater. Uh, Brendan Montour, who is uh, kind of a wild card, who, like, you can see the skill, but it, it's never really worked for him before that. And, you know, last season especially, you saw them being one of the most aggressive teams in the league with the puck, but also without the puck in terms of, um, you know, playing with a lot of speed, looking to hold on to the puck, pressuring very hard. And uh, so, so now like it's like Florida is getting results, not necessarily because they were seeking out, you know, players with great underlying stats, although some of them certainly do have great underlying stats before. Uh, but now they, they've been able to kind of find the right players to play a very high-tempo system. And, and, and I think Toronto and Florida, they're, they're both um, – they both kind of rebuilt their teams, you know, with a mix of just kind of pure quantitative insights, but also within a clear kind of qualitative framework. But I think Toronto's a little bit farther along on that path. And, and actually, like, that brings us to our conversation of why knowing more and, you know, having a clearer vision actually, I think, is preventing Toronto from, from, from scoring as many goals as they could. Yeah, I want to get to that because it's something I've been thinking about since I watched that video, and it's really, really, really well done. But it also gave me a thought about the, the Leafs that I want to get to. I want to start with the thesis of this, this video, which is how the Maple Leafs focus a lot on, as you said, spreading out the ice and getting shots in high danger areas, and they're extremely good at that. And they're winning a ton right now, and that's because... Some of their shooting percentage is regressing, obviously, but they're also getting into these incredibly good areas. And when you get into those areas, you're going to score. Even if you're not shooting the puck particularly well, you're going to score if you get into those areas consistently. And the Panthers, sometimes they beat you just with raw speed, but also they use angles differently than Toronto does. So in the best possible terms you could put this in, do the breakdown of the different styles that they play and compare and contrast them because once you put it in these terms... And you go back, and if you're Panthers fans, think of recent games, and you give a couple examples from the Islanders games and Devils games a couple weeks ago, just how starkly I think the style comes out when you watch those breakdowns. It, it puts things into a perspective when you go, wow, I didn't look at it that way, but now it makes perfect sense. Yeah, so I think in, you know, hockey is a very fast game, and it's hard to pick out these like, the very minute differences at game speed. But one one trick you can do, obviously, is to watch a game in slow motion, which uh, you know maybe is a little bit less entertaining, but there are certainly uh, opportunities that you should do that. The other thing that I like to recommend is people watch the game on mute. 
and and the reason why you watch on mute is it cut it literally cuts out a lot of the noise and then you're able to see the movement on the ice for what it is and when you when you watch the Leafs on mute you'll see them uh, getting off the wall and then attacking the middle of the ice or switching sides or you know very methodically trying to work the puck into a high danger area uh, what you won't see them do is take a ton of shots from bad angles or from the point uh, in fact um, as uh, Jay Fresh uh, posted on his Twitter account recently, the Leafs are the uh, least likely team to have a shot come from their, their defensemen. So I think the league average is around, I think, 35%, and the Leafs are at 27 So instead of one out of every three shots, it's one out of every four, which, you know, it, it's not a massive difference, but it is a pretty sizable one. And then at the higher end, I think you have Vegas at 40%. So, so that's kind of like the spread that you got um, – across the league. So uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Florida, they're just going to beat you with speed off the rush and go right through you. And then in the offensive zone, they like to get into this two, three, which means two players near the net and then three players up high near the blue line. And from there, they're just looking to take shots from whatever angle and, and just get it to net and then win the next retrieval race. Whereas the Leafs, they're very methodical. They try to work into the middle and, uh, for me, you know, there, there's an element of luck or variance when it comes to shooting percentage, but uh, Panthers are, are they're shooting at 10%, the Leafs are at 8%, and league average is 9%, and all that stuff adds up. And the biggest difference for the Leafs is if you're defending against the Leafs, uh, they're going to be a handful for sure, but there are certain situations where you know they're not going to shoot the puck. You know that they're only playing premium hands which means that unless they're in the high slot or they're in the middle or they're, they have a crossing play, you don't, you don't really need to worry about the shooter as much as maybe the, the, the next player who's going to touch the puck. And uh, for, you know, for people maybe who haven't played hockey, it's, if, if you're a forward defending a, a defenseman at the point, if he winds up for a slap shot and you know the shot is coming, you're going to stiffen up because you're going to expect them to hit you maybe with a shot. You're going to expect it to hurt. And then that's going to momentarily kind of freeze you. Whereas if the least defensemen have the puck on the point, you know that they're skating down with it or they're making a pass. You don't really expect them to shoot. And they don't have a ton of big shooters at the point. Like, um, you know, Jake Muzzin's got a pretty good shot, but they don't have any, you know, uh, Aaron Eckblad level slap shot threats. Uh, their D's hardly shoot. So what it means is you're just a little bit quicker at covering the next play. And the next play, even if the Leafs do get to the middle, maybe you get there, you get a bump on that player, you can lift a stick, uh, you can disrupt the release somehow. But it, it's that I think that little difference in reaction time that um, really you know, screws up a lot of those plays for the Leafs. Like It looks like they almost have it, but then they don't. Because the defenders and maybe even the goalie, they, they can, instead of worrying about the shot right now, they can try, try to look around and see what's a step ahead and then go and take that away. Mm -hmm. and, and I think when you watch what Florida does, sometimes you'll go in a game, and I can go back to Seattle on Saturday as an instance, like you'll go, okay, the Panthers are out shooting them by 10. It feels like they're doing more than the other team is. And this is going to happen with every team, but it sometimes feels like it happens with the Panthers more often. And it happened a lot in the 21 shortened season where it feels like they're just piling up these shots. But a lot of them, if you look at, you know, heat maps or you look at money puck or you look at natural stat trick, you'll go and you'll say, oh, there are a lot of them are from not great areas. 
But there's a method to that madness. Not only when you have guys that can shoot, like Aaron Ekblad, who shoots the puck a lot and is good at it, uh, but also they use those bad, in air quotes, shots to try to create other opportunities. And you showed a couple of breakdowns of that in your videos. And in you and one of the great ones is, it, is the 2 nothing goal when they played the Islanders back on the 16th, so two weeks ago. And you specifically point out Brandon Montour is taking a backhand as a right as a right side defenseman towards the net. It has no chance, but they scramble in front of the net because you've got Patrick Hornquist and other guys in front of the net, and Lomberg cleans up a rebound, and there you go up to nothing. And I think that is emblematic in some ways of what the Panthers like to do is they don't care where the shot comes from in some regards. They'll just get it on net, and they figure we've got the size, we've got the speed in order to win those second battles and get an even better scoring chance. And in hockey, there sometimes aren't a huge amount of difference in tactics, but the way you describe Toronto and the way I just described Florida are probably about as different as you can get. And you can see there with the Panthers, when they're on, you can't beat them when they're playing well doing that because they can win those battles almost like when you watch them, and I know you've watched them a ton, like when they're winning those battles, you really can't beat them if they're on their game like that. Yeah, I mean, like, for for those who haven't watched that that goal that that you just described, like, watch it because uh, Brendan Montour, uh, he pin- first he pinches down, then he gets the puck, and then he kind of just backhands the puck at the net from like beyond the tops of the circles. Like, it's the kind of shot that if I saw my player take it, I would yell at him, and 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 that's essentially what happened when I coached in Toronto. Like, when we actively discouraged defensemen to quote-unquote, like, take these wasted shots. And on the one hand, it makes perfect sense because, uh, you know, uh, you want to work the puck into a high-danger area for a forward to take that shot and possibly score on. But on the other hand, it's like, you know, sometimes in poker, you you get into a hand with, like, 5-6 offsuit and you end up flopping the best possible hand. Like, it does happen. So I think in Toronto, like, well, I, I know uh, in Toronto, there's a lot more research and understanding and, and teaching when it comes to offensive theory. But in some situations, it's, it's almost like in such a highly chaotic game, if you become overly optimized or overly kind of picky on what kind of looks that you want to create, you actually get a little bit predictable. So um, whereas in Florida, like I, I don't know exactly what what's going on over there but it just looked like a bunch of players just you know playing fast and executing they they don't really they're not choosy necessarily about what kind of looks they want to create and their biggest strength is their ability to develop speed off the rush but also to be first on the puck when there's a 50 50 battle or if if there's if there's a loose puck so for them they don't need to overthink it they're just going to throw the puck at the net from you know an okay but not great position and then hope that the next retrieval is going to set them up for some kind of a, a defensive breakdown. And they get into good positions. Let's let's not say that they don't because you can look at all the heat maps and Michael McCurdy has them and a bunch of other places you can have them. They get into good areas too. But I think in many ways, I'm going to use a football term here that I, I love, which is multiple. As in the Panthers can beat you in the offensive zone in multiple different kinds of ways, whereas for Toronto... They have their one look. It really works when it works, but even the best high-danger chances sometimes don't go in, whether it be the shot's blocked, whether you have your stick lifted, whether somebody takes a penalty, goalie makes a save. And sometimes 
maybe you can tell me whether you think this analogy works, but sometimes I think the Panthers just play and it doesn't feel like there's a lot of structure to the game, even though there is. It's like freeform jazz in some ways. And the Leafs sometimes very methodical, very thinking mans. And sometimes maybe you could call it over elaborate, overthinking it, which is sometimes a, a term I would use in soccer when you just you overpass it a little too much trying to get that perfect chance rather than a good chance that might still lead to a goal. And does that make sense? Because I think that when you when you break it down the way you did, like the Leafs feel like they're trying to be perfect on every play, whereas the Panthers sometimes are like, we'll take good. You know, do, do you think the Leafs sometimes maybe make perfect the enemy of good a little bit? So, so here, here's a situation what you're thinking about, okay? And, and this is a situation where I think in hockey it's kind of funny how sometimes, like, you're so good that you're bad. So if you're able to get into the offensive zone and you move the puck around and maybe you create a couple shots, um, and then for whatever reason, like, you make a bonehead play, you lose the puck, but then the other team is tired, okay? So a lot of times what happens is that tired player is going to clear the zone and then you get to attack them while they're on a change. So actually, the fact that you you turn the puck over after an extended ozone shift actually sets you up to attack them again off the rush, which is better than attacking with five players in the zone. Whereas if you're just a little bit better at managing the puck and you never make that turnover, uh, then you, you're playing against five tired players, but more importantly, you're playing against five players. You, you never get that free zone entry that comes after a clear. So, and I, I see a lot of that with Toronto when they're really able to pressure teams and hem them in their zone. But, you know, at, at the end, it becomes difficult to shoot through those shin pads or force passes through. Whereas Florida, sometimes like you have Montour taking a, a really dumb backhand shot, the other team gets the clear, but then they're coming back with tons of speed and then they might score off the rush. So, so, so hockey's a funny game like that where like sometimes like maybe being better actually puts you in a less favorable situation. It's so interesting because when I think about the Panthers sometimes and the way they play now, it, it feels like, because in, in a previous regime, they took point shots, but it didn't feel like there was a point to the point shots. And we yelled at that in previous Why Hockey episodes. If you want to go back, if you hate yourself, you can go listen to those. But with this, it feels like even the silly shots when they get the puck back to the point after a cycle, it feels like everything does have a purpose, even if it looks very free flowing and, you know, maybe more not thinking as much, just reacting. I think maybe the best way to describe the Panthers and Leafs, who are two very, very good hockey teams, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens when they play each other, although they don't play each other until April for some reason. Uh, the Leafs are a very thinking man's team in terms of the way they go about it. They're very methodical. They have their plan and they don't really deviate too much from the plan where the Panthers it feels like at times they can get caught into a, a situation where if a team is able to neutralize their speed, if a team's able to get them to play in a quote-unquote half-court game or an offensive zone game, they're not as good cycling the puck, looking for their run. They're not as patient, I think, and the Leafs are patient. So th does that make sense when you, when you go into the, these breakdowns? Because one of the things my co-host wanted to ask me about is the downsides to the way Florida plays, and I, I do want to talk about that, but to the first point, did that breakdown make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you want to talk about the downsides of how Florida plays, just rewatch last year's series against Tampa because the reason why Tampa beat Florida, first of all, was uh, their power play was extraordinary. But second of all, 
at critical moments, they were able to use Florida's aggression against them. And the best example I have is game one. So game one, uh, you know, Kucherov comes back. I think he had like two or three points on the power play. But with like, what, two minutes left, um, Florida had the puck in Tampa zone. And then I guess it gets turned over. And then Uyghur gets burned off the rush. And then I think it was Point who scores. Like, no, like yes, it was Braden Point. I think I remember everything that happened in that game from start to finish. It's burned into my skull. Yeah, and so you had Florida up ice, you know, pressing, and and they were, they were essentially outplaying Tampa at five on five that entire series. But um, all it takes is one mistake, and then you isolate Uyghur, who's an extremely smart player, but whose, you know, natural speed is maybe not the best, and then you know they they get scored on, and it's game over. So th- that's that's the biggest thing. Is it's like if Florida is on its game, they're hoping to, you know, kill the enemy with a thousand cuts and then maybe, or once in a while, deliver a kind of a finishing punch. But if they're on their game, they're also really vulnerable to, uh, to dying via blunt force trauma, like, like the point. It makes, and it makes, again, it makes a ton of sense. And it's something we've talked about on this show a bit, me and my co-host, because we wonder whether the Panthers have another gear. As in, can they actually slow the game down? And from a tactical perspective, I want to ask you how you think that they could do that. It doesn't look like they're going to do that because we have seen the coaching change, enforced coaching change, and the systems have not changed really at all, it seems like, from Quenville to Burnett. And that makes sense. You want to keep the continuity, and also they're really good at what they do. But when it comes to the playoffs, and Tampa knows how to play in different ways, and I think also might be an issue with the Leafs. I want to get to that too. But... If we're talking to the Panthers, imagine you're coaching them and you're saying, okay, there's a time in the game where we need to slow this down. This frenetic pace does not actually benefit us, even though we're really good at it. How would you then coach a team that is designed to play at 110 miles an hour all the time, or spinal tap hockey, as I call it? How would you coach them to, at a moment, find a way to slow the game down and to be a little more methodical, to take the air out of the ball, or to you know, prevent some of those breakaways that you just talked about or those odd man rushes, which they sometimes give up after they get a great chance because they play so fast. Well, well, I think first of all is I think Florida is extremely lucky because as a team, they found an identity and they found a play, the players and the system that works for them. So the first thing is not to try to reinvent the wheel and deviate from that because that, that I think will be the biggest mistake. Like, you know, however, you know, Tampa played, they made some tweaks, but they didn't really deviate from that necessarily. You know, t- Toronto has stuck with the recipe. Um, you know, I'm I'm looking at Colorado and they're sticking to the recipe. Like for you to have sustained success, you got you got to stick with it. And I think Florida is in a really enviable situation. Like if, if you look across the league, I don't think there are many teams who are better set up than the Panthers right now. And and first of all, they just got to stick with it. Like, um, like we saw it with Washington, right? Like they, they won when everybody thought their window was passed or St. Louis, like they won when everybody thought their window was, was passed. So the, so the first order of business is to try to, you know, keep the, the the core guys or, or this core way of playing for as long as you can, and maybe make some adjustments on the fringes, um, but basically just to be yourself, because if, if you lose that identity or that cohesion between who you are and what you do, then you have no chance. 
it's an incredibly good point. And I always think that the fact that they have this such a strong identity is hugely important. And it came very quickly with when Joel Quenville came in to now what they, they are and how they built this team to play that way. Uh, I, I just think that at a time, like in the playoffs, they might need to find a way to slow it down because sometimes it doesn't work in the playoffs. Although, again, it, against Tampa, they still were able to beat them five on five in multiple games and come back from a ridiculous deficit in game three and still win because they played the way they played. And that was without Ekblad, which is in- incredible to watch. Uh, in terms of specific players in the Panthers, who, is there one that you think is the most identifiable? You mentioned a couple players earlier, Verhage, Duclair, and Montour, I think are very good example. Forsling is a good example of that. But do you think there's a, a kind of player, you know, that on this team that you, if you wanted to understand the Panthers as a total neophyte when it comes to this stuff, and you wanted to just said, watch one player and you'll get a hundred percent, as close to a hundred percent understanding as you can get of the way this team plays, what player would you be watching? Well, I mean, I, I think certainly Verhage and Duclair are the answer. If you if your question is what's changed for this team, right? Like they're, they were able to, uh, like Florida found them for a relatively cheap price in the market, and it fits exactly with what they want to do. And now they they they're involved in a lot of the things that Florida tries to do. And actually, before I forget, um, you know, when I talk about this team kind of staying the course and uh, maintaining its identity, um, I don't I don't mean the special team necessarily because the special teams haven't been good. So for I want to have- get to that too. I want to yeah. get to that too. Uh, but I wanted to focus on the five-on-five five play because as as bad as the specialty teams have been, uh, their five-on-five five play, their numbers are still exceptionally good, even though they've had some struggles. And that's why I keep telling the Panthers fans: if the five-on-five five play dropped, I'd get worried. But it hasn't. They're still doing what they are supposed to do five-on-five. Five. And until that changes, I'm not gonna free. Like you can get mad at the special teams, and I have been. But as long as they're playing the five-on-five the way that they want to and the way that I know they can, even when they don't have Barkov or other players in the lineup, I I don't freak out. So I want to make that also very clear because I sometimes see that with Panthers fans who freak out about two losses. So, But anyway, you can continue. So um, when it comes to five-on-five, like I'm not even really worried about the personnel or the the tactics necessarily because – like when when you work at a team level for you know entire seasons at a time, you you realize that the difference between you know teams that are good in the regular season, teams that are able to play until June or or July, is um, how well they're able to keep it up physically. Like the way that Florida plays, it's extremely demanding on a player's cardio or on their you know on just on their over, overall physical condition, right? So. Basically, you're you're looking at things like hydration programs or nutrition or sleep or like those are the kind of things that I care about because for for these players to be able to to execute uh, at this speed for you know 80 and then 100 games because if you count playoffs it's closer to 100 games uh, they got to have staying power so whether it's physically mentally or whatever like I'd be more concerned about that than the the nitty-gritty in terms of, like, the tactics right now. That's a good point. I, I don't think about that as much as I probably should, but you're right. Like, rest and recovery is probably most important when you're playing 82 games at 100 miles an hour, and then you have to play 20-plus more games at 100 miles an hour, which is, you know, and that's what the goal is. And 
I mean, there are other styles in the league that are less demanding in terms of the perspective, as you just mentioned. Although it's still obviously hugely demanding once you get in the playoffs, you get bumps and bruises and people play through psychotic stuff all the time. But uh, I now want to switch the gears to the, to their specialty teams because they are bad, quite bad actually, which is not good for a team that has as much talent as it does. And I think some of it has to do, of course, with you know having Andrew Brunette get promoted and figuring out the responsibilities. But when you watch their power play, which is not really much of one at the moment, for a team that is so good at all the things that they do, they don't move a lot on the power play. And at times it looks really static, even for the great players that they have. And their, last year, their power play was great. It was awesome at what it did. And even in the past, it was good. Although a lot of that was Mike Hoffman having a crazy shot. So in that situation, what do you see? And what are the simple things that you could say could change in a couple practices or a couple little tweaks that they can make to get that going? Because for a team that's as good as they are, have the specialty teams as poor as they've been it's frustrating because I think it prevents them from getting up to an even higher level which they're going to need to hit at some point so so I talked about the Leafs being a little bit predictable at five on five and it seems to me like Florida is very predictable at five on four which is if the PK is able to close down the seams down low then Florida is going to get the puck up to Aaron Eckblad who's going to take a slap shot and then all the PKs got to do is get into the lane, you know, hope that they don't get hit in the face and then clear the puck. Right. Like, is, is that what you've been seeing? It seems a lot like it, but I think a lot of it comes from, they don't move as much on the, like you don't see the fluidity and the movement and getting players into those prime areas, right? Like Aaron Eckblad is really, really good. Like, he has learned, from Keith Yandel, I had to run a power play. And Keith Yandel, for all of his faults, can run a power play. And he's got a great shot. Jonathan Huberto is one of the more creative passers in the league. You've got, at some times, Patrick Hornquist standing in front of the goalie and being Patrick Hornquist. And you've got Sasha Barkov, when he's healthy, who can do whatever he wants. And at times, it looks like they just don't move around. They just stay in the same spots. It feels very static. And teams can defend that. And there are times when you're, it'll work, but at times, it just feels so blah and I, I think it, it makes sense what you're saying so what would you do to, like I've I've wanted to see them they've tweaked players they put Reinhardt there they put Bennett there they've sometimes put Duclair there and it just it doesn't feel like it's working so in terms of maybe not just a personnel even just how the the power plays line but just simple things that you could do to tweak the movement like what would you what would you tell them to do when your power play struggling and you know you can get it right but it's just it feels like you're kind of stuck in the mud. Okay, so th- their power play was really good last year after Ekblad went down, right? It's really good, and uh, they used five forwards. And what so w- what they did, and, and like I, I did a video workshop about that last season actually. But so so what they did was they had Hornquist at the net, and then the other players they had on that unit were uh, Huberto, Barkov. Um, Verhage and Bennett, if memory serves, like that. that well, they did the... run it. They ran it in the in the playoffs when things yeah. got really bad, and then it worked. And I I mentioned at the start of the year, like they could run that if they wanted to. They're not going to at the moment, but they could if they wanted to. And it was fascinating to see how quickly that worked. So I guess that's one way. But the movement was a lot more fluid. Fluid, I should say, because there wasn't the one guy at the point who had to marshal everything. 
and you could have a bunch of like four different guys running it at the point with Hornquist down low. Yeah, so so the idea is Hornquist is the net guy, and then everybody else is free to rotate up in the zone and then come back down. So so that's a very difficult formation for PKs to to defend. And I, I wonder what happened. Uh, I, I wonder if what happened was you know because Ekblad is back and because they got Reinhardt, they felt like they wanted to incorporate those guys, and that kind of threw off the recipe. It's possible. I mean, necessity is the mother of invention, and. There are times when, you know, when your back's against the wall, you have to innovate. You know, it's the pressure that comes to innovate when you're in a situation like that. And they did have to innovate because Ekblad did a lot on the power play before. But even then, before he got hurt, the power play was better than it was this year. I, I think sometimes for a team, maybe it's this. Maybe it's the fact that this is a team that is really, really good when it doesn't have to think. And on the power play, they're thinking right now. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that, that could be it. Like... Like for me, when I think of teams that just overwhelm you with, you know, just raw kind of speed and pressure, like the the bum rush teams, I think about Carolina, you know, and they do it by dumping and chasing and forechecking to death. Florida does it with their speed off the rush and retrieving pucks. Colorado does it because their D's are so good and, and they're up in the play all the time. But like, yeah, like it's, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to, succeed in kind of that more of a half-court game. And I think for the Panthers, at sometimes you wonder in the offensive zone, you go, actually, they don't do as well off the cycle as they do when they can play a track meet, you know, pond hockey kind of game because they could just beat you with speed. And sometimes when the game slows down, a team that is coached in many ways to not think, then for has to think. And maybe that's some of it. I don't know. Um, and quickly, because I want to talk about other teams around the league too in terms of just tactical setup. Uh, have you noticed any real differences between Quenville Coast Panthers and Burnett Coast Panthers? Because I really haven't, other than the power play and penalty kill getting worse. But that's different uh, in some ways. In terms of just the general raw principles, I think nothing really has changed. You, you could show me a game from October and a show me from a game from November, and I wouldn't see much difference. Uh, have you seen anything different or just little tweaks that define the different coaches? Um, I haven't noticed anything. And, and once again, like, I don't see any reasons to change it five on five. I think what they have is working. So, yeah, well, it, it makes sense. Cause I think there are some Panthers fans who were calling for an, another coach or saying like, why should they keep Burnett? And I, this is the reason why you keep Andrew Burnett because you have something that's working. Why, why ever change it? So in more of a general scope, uh, in terms of tactics around the league, in terms of an evolution, we were talking about like five, six years ago to now. What's the biggest evolution in hockey tactics in the last like half decade that's been the most notable for you? Um, I, I would say defensively, uh, more teams are using a 1-1-3. So the way that you see Tampa play, like it used to be that maybe a, a handful of teams play that way. Now it's like close to half the league or maybe a third of the league. So uh, like Florida plays a 1-2-2 and... Tampa sends that third defense, uh, sorry, that third forward back to help out with the D. So instead of having two players back, you have three players back. And it's a little bit better against teams that play off the rush. Um, and, uh, you know, you're slightly more vulnerable against teams that dump and chase, but it's, it's not a huge difference. And um, so defensively, that's probably the biggest thing. And then offensively, you see teams play more of a 2-3. So having, once again, having that third forward close to the D. So Florida does that. 
Uh, Tampa definitely do that. Um, Toronto does that. Uh, and then also, uh, even like as recent as five years ago, on a neutral zone regroup, uh, a lot of teams are looking to just shoot this puck into the offensive zone, whereas now you see defensemen and forwards working together a little bit more and going for more controlled entries as opposed to a dump and chase. That's a lot of uh, work from people like Corey Schneider and a whole host of others who just demonstrated quite well the effectiveness of those kinds of plays. And yeah, you do see it a lot more. It's very much less dumping and chasing, even though it still happens quite a bit and more but, regroup, right? But you know what? Like to, to go back to that poker analogy, like, like teams are always changing, but not necessarily in the same direction. Like one team that is playing dump and chase and, you know, playing off the boards more than ever is Tampa. Like over the years, they've gotten more conservative, um, which is interesting because, you know, they still move around really well in the ozone. They still have that power play. They still have really good players who can get active and carry the puck at times, but they're actually surprisingly conservative when it comes to transitioning the puck with control. Do you think that has something to do with just the personnel of the team having changed in many ways? Or also, is that in some ways a reaction to what happened against Columbus in 2019? Or is it a combination of everything like that? Because Tampa tactically fascinates me. Because John Cooper's an amazing coach. And at times, the Lightning don't play the way you think they would. They play sometimes, frankly, ugly hockey, but it works. Yeah, and... The same, I would say, uh, is true for Pittsburgh, and, and that's why you know they, they're able to have success without uh, Crosby to start and, and Malkin. Uh, they play a surprisingly gritty style of hockey for you know uh, more so than you know their their star power would indicate. So, as I said, it's it's like that that poker analogy where. If the market is going one way, sometimes it pays to go the other way. And, and I think those two teams, ironically, the two most recent teams with back-to-back Stanley Cups, but they, they were able to make adjustments, maybe even a little bit against the flow. But I also think it has something to do with, too, like how they're able to transform the, the Mark Donk, Buzz Flibbit thing, which is one of the, the best tweets in the history of Twitter, uh, how they're able to turn those players into good players, because sometimes they do go against the grain and simplify the game, and it makes it works for these players who can then fit into roles really well, even if Tampa has multiple good players out with injury, and for the Penguins, that's also the case, and they can just develop these guys, and they give them that same sort of impact, even though their stars are missing. And maybe, maybe it's just that, again, an organizational development philosophy or something to that effect, but it works really, really well for two teams who you'd think, actually, it probably should, and yet it still does. Yeah, well, the, I think the best example for that is Boston because you look at Boston, they have such great talent at the top of their roster and then they have a lot of homegrown players that they're able to kind of rotate in and out and w- without handicapping the team all that much. And, and it's because everybody plays true to their identity and to their ability. So if, you, if you're the Bergeron, Marchand, Pasternak line, you have free reign to make plays off the rush. If you're Charlie McAvoy, you have permission to jump into the play whenever. But if you're, you know, whether it's Brendan Carlo or Connor Clifton or Carson Kuhlman, like you kind of just play for the tie, right? And, and, and it's fine that way because then, um, you know, you play for the tie until the top line comes back out and then they'll, they'll, they'll win the game for you. 
So nobody's trying to really overreach their abilities, which I think maybe with Toronto in past years and maybe with Florida now, um, maybe the bottom six guys, they they go for more than they should at times. And and that's where it, where it can hurt you because if you're a bottom six player, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're any slower or any less skilled than the top six guys. It just means that under pressure, uh, your success rate is not as good. Your execution is not as good. So if you try to go for the same thing, then you're going to turn it over more. You're going to, you know, get, get the puck taken away from you more. And, um, ultimately like, like that's the idea of teams being more conservative is they let the stars play. And then the, the bottom line players, they have more structure or, or, you know, they have less freedom. And it sometimes works because if you know, when you play Florida, they're going to make plays that are risky and you can beat them because they make plays that are risky. Or if you're playing Toronto, you know exactly what they're going to do. And at point, you know, they might overpass. They might make one too many moves uh, in the offensive zone. And that leads to odd man rushes. That leads to clean zone exits and entries the other way. And you can take advantage of that. So in some ways, it's, it's that chicken and egg kind of game that always comes with sports tactics where there's one innovation and then there's a response. There's another innovation and then there's a response. And it always goes cyclically, I, I guess, in that way. And you can see how an older school, you know, dump and chase would work for certain teams to be able to. So not just the balance in their own lineups, but also balance against the new systems that they're going to play. Because for Tampa, there were times in that series against the Panthers where they just shut them down. And the Panthers looked so frustrated because they couldn't get what they want. And that's because Tampa was able to do the things that are able to frustrate you know, and they did it against Carolina in the same way. It might be why Tampa looks so much better against Carolina and Florida than they did necessarily against the Islanders because the Islanders play much more similarly, I guess, to the way Tampa can play when they have to. I mean, again, maybe, maybe I'm saying this from just the wrong perspective, but that's what it felt like with the Lightning. Like, they can play different styles and still be equally effective at it because they have the ability to do both play the way Florida and Carolina do and also the way the Islanders do. And that's why they're so good. Yeah. So, so to, to kind of summarize, like one thing that you can look for uh, th- throughout the season from from the Panthers is what happens to you know Sam Bennett or Sam Reinhart or Brendan Montour, like when the chips are down, or um, when there's a tight game. Do you see them kind of overreach and then make mistakes or do they just kind of stay the course and, you know, buy time until either the opponent makes a mistake or, you know, the top line comes back onto the ice. So for, for, for Florida to have staying power and to maybe, you know, take a next step in terms of playoff success, like that's something to look for. Like what, what are their middle of the lineup or bottom of the lineup players doing uh, under pressure? And I think that they, at times, play very well under pressure. At times. There are times when they do not. But I think that this team, because they have this lineup versatility, they, they can play pretty well under pressure. I've seen it. This year, there's been ups and downs in that. But also, that happens when Barkov's not there. And he's such an all-encompassing presence. Uh, what team, for one reason or another, is the most fascinating for you to watch as a neutral? On a given night, you're going to say to yourself, all right, I've got 10 games to watch, and I want to watch this team because of this reason what's the most fascinating team to watch in the league for whatever reason or another from your informed perspective um 
actually it's it's for it's for a completely stupid reason but well that's fine i I, I really you know what like like i like watching buffalo now because i want to see what tage thompson does every night like like he's a player that i coach against in the ahl never really noticed him kind of struggled as a winger and now like as a center he's actually surprisingly good and and i want to i want to see like how his career develops because if he's able to sustain this and you know he he is on quite of a hot streak in terms of just finishing uh his shots but um i like to see like how much more buffalo is able to get out of him but uh, aside from that like you know uh, i enjoy watching florida i enjoy watching uh tampa maybe not as much as before i still enjoy watching them uh colorado um i i enjoy how as as i mentioned how patient and how methodical boston is uh, and then uh, the team that I watch most of all is the Leafs because, you know, I, I know the people there. I, I know a lot of the players there. Like I I want to I want to watch them kind of see see through what what we started when I was there. And I have to ask about the Leafs. And this is also goes part of coaching, because as good as they are right now, I think everybody knows it's about the playoffs. They, they need to win in the playoffs. And. They, they are clearly good enough to do this, and yet they always find reasons to lose. And I want to know from, you, from a coaching perspective, and you're talking to players, and they know this stuff happens. There is no way in Toronto, there is no player in that dressing room doesn't know all about their own history. Some of them have lived it, others are coming in, but they hear about it. How do you coach through that? Is it really, is it truly stay the course, stay the course? Or is there something else that you would talk about with a team where it really feels for them it's mental rather than anything else. Well, I mean, you, you, you can talk yourself into a variety of mental ailments if, 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 you, if you decide to look at things that way. Like, the, the way that I would think about the Leafs season is all they got to do is play more games than anyone else, right? They just got to play more games. Because if you play more games than anyone else, that means you're in the final. And in the final, once you get there, then, you know, whatever happens, happens. Just, you know, in, enjoy the experience and, and, and enjoy the journey and, and get some games under your belt and play longer than anybody else. And then whatever happens in the end happens. Like, you know, you, you weren't alive back when the Leafs were sucking it up in the 80s and 90s. Like it doesn't well, have I was alive in the mid '90s, but I wasn't paying attention to anything then. Yeah, but the Leafs were really—they were truly horrible in the '80s. But but what I'm saying is like, you you can talk yourself into how you're cursed or how it's it's not meant to be or this and that, and you know, like it's just, at the end of the day, like you you bring it upon yourself, right? It's it's the the kind of self-talk that you have and the kind of context that you put things in, but. Like I, you know, I lived in Toronto. I was I was in that environment, and for me, it never really phased me because I'm not from Toronto. I'm from Montreal, right? And mm-hmm. for me, I, like I just found it kind of funny. And like, you know, w- when you have good players and you play a system that, broadly speaking, works really well, and your special teams are great, and you know, you keep everybody healthy, whether it's physically and mentally, like, just stay the course. You know, uh, get games under your belt play into April, March, June, maybe July. And then if you somehow end up winning the cup, well, so be it. Like, that's how I see it. Like, I I don't, like, the whole time I was there, I 
like I would tell people, like I don't really care about winning the cup. Like I just I I, I want to make our players better. I want to be uh, I want to be better in my job, and and I want I want to accomplish things. But you know the cup is just so far away that it's not even worth thinking about. Like we won the Calder Cup when I was there. Um, you know I, I I think it was a great experience for our team, and it was a great experience for a lot of the players who you know uh, are either with the Leafs or elsewhere in the NHL. But what what you take away from that year is is just they enjoy playing hockey together well into the summer. That's the thing. Sometimes it's just as simple as that. Because you can tell on a lot of teams at some points and they don't enjoy playing hockey. You can see it. And when you don't enjoy what you do, you're not going to be very good at it. I think it's very simple, very simple metaphor in life. Uh, as we start to wrap this up, and this has been an incredible discussion, I want to ask you where you think the next innovation in terms of the way hockey is played is coming. And let's not think at any point about wacky rule changes that might come. Of course they could. But in the current structure of the NHL game, the way it's played, what do you think could be an area where an innovation could sprout from? Oh, well, I talked about it last year, and then, and then people, were, people didn't get it. But once again, I'll say that you'll see some teams in some situations put out three defensemen and two forwards. And in a way, you're the perfect person to, to ask me this because – I think if you're talking about Florida wanting to defend better and wanting to close out big games, you might see them playing three defensemen and two forwards at certain points. Well, they did do that when uh, they couldn't have a forward that could be reasonably adept at doing anything, so they played Mark Pesek and Mike Matheson at forward. And Mark Pesek got a hat-trick against the Leafs once, and it was hilarious. Yeah. I, I, I don't know why that worked. I guess it was... As, as my co-host would say, it's one of those Joel Quenville things that he uses to spark the, uh, the dressing room and gets them motivated for a game when they wouldn't otherwise be motivated. But I guess it could work. And a lot of defensemen now kind of play as forwards anyway, the way they activate, the way they move the puck. So you could definitely see them quasi-play as a, as a forward, and it might work. Yeah, yeah so, you know, complete hypothetical here. But uh, Game 7, Stanley Cup Finals, if... Florida is holding on to one goal lead with like four minutes left. Maybe they're, they're throwing out, you know, Barkov, uh, Huberto, uh, Forsling, Uyghur, and Ekblad together. Who knows? I, I'd like to see that, although I don't want to imagine what my heart rate would be doing at that time. <laughs> I might be hyperventilating a little bit, but I guess I would, from a tactics perspective, I guess that would be very interesting. Maybe, because Florida's got a surplus of defensemen who can skate and make plays, and also they sometimes have trouble defending counterattacks. So, so maybe that's a way to do it. I think that's one way. Are there any other ideas of just whether it be roles that a player can play or ways that, you know, they, you can because you only have so much room on a 200 by 85 to, to move around. And the Leafs are an example, as you said, of a team that could spread it out as far as it could go and then collapses in on you. It's not like football or basketball or any of these other sports. We have, I guess, wider, in some cases, playing surfaces to explore more space. But is there any other way that you could see like something in an innovation like that sprouting? Because even when it looked like hockey tactics were stale, we saw big changes in the way teams entered the zone, the way they defended. You know, what could be the next thing beyond, I guess, playing a defenseman as a forward, which the Panthers hopefully now don't ever have to do again because they can't get anything from the bottom six? Well, well, first of all, you're not playing defenseman as a forward. You're just playing with one fewer uh, forward. 
Yeah, right. that's. It, I always think of it as the, the Pesic example, but probably that's not the right way to think about it. Yeah. Um, so nothing really comes to mind right now, but if you want to find out what the next idea in hockey is, then uh, I think now is a good time to plug my, my newsletter and, uh, and that my That is e-book. an incredible transition. At yeah. that, I'm giving you a round of applause. That's really, really well done. Thank you. Thank you. So... I, I, if this was another podcast, the, the co-hosts would not be groaning because the transition was terrible. This is, they would actually be standing up and giving you a round of applause. This is very, very well done. I have to yeah. take my uh, learn from, uh, from you in podcast transition game. Yeah, well, I, I was a marketing major. so That would make sense. I, yeah. I went to journalism school for multiple reasons, and uh, I am not good at marketing myself. But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. But yes, please plug your stuff because people should be reading it and watching what you do. Yeah, so the, so the best way to find me is on Twitter at uh, J-H-A-N-H-K-Y. And then once you follow me on Twitter, you can uh, sign up for my free Substack newsletter. There, there's a free component uh, with weekly articles for fans, but also there's a paid component where every week I do like a 20 or 30 minute video breakdown on uh, teams such as the Panthers or individual players across the league that I find really interesting. And and that's maybe more for players or coaches or, you know, there's some NHL GMs that subscribe to that. So they get a lot of value out of it. Um, and then also I have uh, some eBooks on sale about, uh, the behind the scenes in hockey, how uh, different teams play, my experiences with the Leafs, my experiences working with elite players. So uh, you can find all of that on my Twitter account. Yep. And if you haven't been following him up to this point, what are you doing? Why are you not following him? He's, he's incredible. I, I don't say this just because the guest is on here, but because the genuine goal, I think, for all of us is to just learn more. We're, if we're smarter, we do a better job of informing that to people who inform their own watching of the game, and that makes it more enjoyable. And that's, I think, what the crux of all of this is. And Jack, you're one of the best people at doing that. So again, hearty congratulations on all that you've done. The 3,000 plus subscribers. Hopefully we'll get there on Substack one day. And again, thanks for coming on. All right, take care, Matt.